The Laughter Permitted Podcast is brought to you by Ally. Do it right. Hello to our dope village. I'm Julie Foudy. She's Lynn Ozawi. And this is Laughter Permitted. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Julie. Lynn, I am super excited, as you know, for our guest this week, Missy Franklin, because we have both agreed for a very long time that, one, she's an incredible athlete, but even more important to both of us is she's just a fantastic person all around. We are officially dubbing Missy a goat. We've made this up. <laughs> she is one of the greatest humans of all time. Goat! <laughs> the reason we really wanted to chat with Missy is beyond all her success as a swimmer is that the script for her athletic career did not end as planned. And just to give a little context, she came out of the gates as a 17-year-old at the 2012 London Olympics, winning four gold medals and was literally America's sweetheart, all full of personality and joy. And so it came as a surprise when we all watched her struggle four years later at the Rio Olympic Games in what Missy calls the hardest eight days of her career. And we both wanted to know how she came to terms with that. She's been open about her challenges of dealing with depression and anxiety. It's a really fascinating conversation with so much wisdom shared by the Gahoot. So get comfortable listening. It's Missy Franklin. Hey there, Dope Village. As y'all know, Ally has backed Laughter Permitted since day one of our podcast as our financial ally. And honestly, Lynn, I might just tattoo Ally on my forehead. And Ally is currently on a mission to change the game for women sports. And get this, along with being sponsors of the National Women's Soccer League, Atlantic Coast Conference, United States Golf Association, and the Las Vegas Aces... Ally has committed to an equal media investment in women's and men's sports. And you, my friends, can be part of the change by watching your favorite athletes crush it on TV, by going to women's sporting events in person, by, I don't know, maybe listening to every single episode of this amazing podcast on trailblazing women. Because every time you show up for women's sports, you are helping move the game forward. You can learn more about Ally by visiting ally.com. Hey there, Dope Village. Lynn and I have been involved in women's sports our entire lives. And truly, we've never been more excited for what's to come in this women's sports space. And one big reason, Ally. Ally has made a commitment to an equal media investment in women's and men's sports. And that means more money going to women's sports and more visibility for what these incredible athletes are accomplishing. Ally is on a mission to change the game for women's sports. So here at Laughter Permitted, we're going to keep telling the stories of trailblazing women. And every time you listen in, you are part of that change. To learn more about Ally, go to ally.com. Talking and laughing combined, feeling all right, get comfortable, listening. It's laughter permitted. 
miss you, darling. I miss you so much. You look so, so well. Oh, gosh. Thank you. <laughs> the ring light helps. I know, right? I know. I swear <laughs> by it. I gave one to Lynn and she rejected it. I was like, what are you doing? I have a lot of natural light that comes that in. True. Your lighting looks beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, thank you guys so much for asking me to do this. I'm so excited. Only Missy uh, thanks us before we thank her, right? <laughs> That's so you. Thank you. You always were like that with interviews. Oh, <laughs> you can't wait. It's so nice. It's like any chance I get to just like hang out with friends. Like, exactly. That, that is exactly what we do too. It's no heavy lifting. It's like, it's like so fun to be able to catch up with people. I know. I bet. I love this. this is amazing. Congratulations on all the success you've had. It's incredible. Aw, you're such a gem. Missy, set the scene, sister. All right. I'm talking to one of my favorite human beings in the oh, what? world from Denver, Colorado. I've gotten to the point where I have color coded my books in my office. Um, <laughs> I noticed that. It's beautiful. I am wearing actual pants today. So <laughs> this is where we're at. <laughs> Breaking news. Missy Franklin is wearing pants on a Zoom. Uh, that's more than me. I'm still in my pajama bottoms. It's the winds. You got to take the small winds every day. <laughs> Do you know that literally I put on jeans for the first time in seven months the other day? And I had that moment of like, Oh my God, what happens if these don't fit? Like, can I zip them up? And they like got more uncomfortable. Like with such a prolonged period away, I put mine on and I was like, why would I ever do this to myself? Exactly. They're very tight, right? Uh, oh. Far too restricting. <laughs> Missy, I want to share a quick story about you. Oh gosh. Okay. About something I'm not sure you're aware you did, but is very unique. And I think it yes. illustrates who you are as a person in some ways. Okay. Julie did an interview with you when you were at Cal that I happened to be the producer on. Mm -hmm. And before the interview, before you sat down, before you even said hi to Julie, you went around and said hello to every member of the crew and mm -hmm. introduced yourself. So that would be two videographers, an audio person, the producer, a grip. And that always stuck with me. And the reason mm -hmm. why, no one does that. In my entire career, I think one other athlete did that. And boys, I, I just wanted to let you know that. Like it always stuck out in my head that you did that. And insider scoop, you know, we're supposed to be totally unbiased as journalists, but that made me a big fan of you for sure. Oh my gosh, Lynn, that is so sweet. Thank you so much. That was just like second eight. I mean, exactly. everyone is working so hard. Like, absolutely. You should go and introduce yourself and say thank you to everyone. Cause I never even thought twice about that. So thank you so much for saying that. That means so much. Second nature to you. Yeah. <laughs> Most athletes come in and they just sit right down. They don't even acknowledge anyone else in the room. And that always stuck out with me with you. Well, thank you. Yeah. I always try and ask for everyone's names. I'll forget them three seconds later, but I always at least ask. <laughs> I'm so bad at remembering names. <laughs> it's, it's so funny too. Just like little moments like that change everything though. Like, and it doesn't take that long. It's like what I tell my kids all the time. Like just take a moment and say hello and introduce yourself and walk up to someone and you, and it's second nature to you. 
It's good parents right there too, right? Oh, I've got the best, the absolute best. <laughs> okay, Missy, I have to get something off my chest. Oh, I think yeah. you probably know this about me, but I'm a land mammal and do not do well in water. <laughs> I am fascinated in that you guys spent all day, every day, in the water, you're not chasing any shiny object like I need. You're not interacting with humans. I don't get it. How did you do it as a swimmer? And more importantly, why would you do it as a swimmer? <laughs> That's the real question is the why. Um, I think you have to be a little bit crazy, but you know, we have a saying in our sport and we call it black line therapy. And I think it's something that's really unique because it is so different in that for so much of what we do every day, you are by yourself, you're in your own head and you're staring at a black line and you only get 10 seconds to talk to your teammate at the wall before you have to leave again. And I think, you know, everyone found a different way to deal with that. Like, I think for me, part of the reason why I love swimming so much is because it was whatever I needed it to be that day. Like whatever was going on in my day, whether I walked into practice in a great mood or in a sad mood, whether I was stressed or calm, like I could just get in the water. And for that two hours, there was literally nothing else that I could do, but stare at that black line. And so I could just let everything else go and focus solely on getting better at what I loved. And it, it was so isolating in that way. And it kind of created this safe bubble for me, I think. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Did you ever get too much in your own head in the water? Or what are you thinking about all those laps? Totally. I think different practices for sure. Like the the bad practices where just for whatever reason, it's not clicking that day. You're not hitting your pace times. You feel awful. Those are the days where your head is just overworking. Like what's wrong with me? Why do I feel like this? Why can't I get this time? Why can I push faster? And I think over time, that's when you really start to learn to, you know, just respect your body and understand that it's not going to be able to show up hundred percent every single day mentally you can show up as much as you can and have your body give whatever it can possibly give and just be proud of that because we can't give more than our best. So I think once I finally got to the point where it was like, okay, today might be a great practice and it might be a bad practice, but I'm going to give the best of whatever it is that I have to give. And at the end mm -hmm. of the day, that's all I can ask of myself. Okay, let's let's rewind to your incredible career, uh, Missy, and and go back to the Olympics in 2012 because you're only 17 years old coming into this Olympics. And if someone had said to you, Missy, darling, you are gonna walk away from this Olympics with four Olympic gold medals, right? What would you have said to them? Well, hopefully, without sounding too egotistical, I probably would have said, "Well, that's the goal." <laughs> Oh, nice. I, I think going into it, you know, even it being my first time and being a rookie, like you have to have big dreams and you have to believe that you can achieve them. And that's mm. kind of just bottom line. Like I walked into London saying, you know, whatever happens, happens again, I'm just going to have fun and do my absolute best. But like, I believe I'm capable of walking out of here with multiple gold medals. And like, that's my goal. That's what I want to do. And so I think you know, having those goals in the first place, but then truly believing like in your soul that you are capable of, of doing that is one of just the most important things you can have. 17 though. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I was eating Cheetos watching Scooby-Doo on the couch. 
<laughs> okay, let's also assess though that what I would consider my greatest takeaway from London was Justin Bieber tweeting me. So <laughs> I think that brings it back to the 17 year old. <laughs> Oh, the Beebs. The Beebs was a fan. Oh my gosh. I went to his concert after I got home. I met him. It was great. Wait, back up. Let's hear this story. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So it was after my Hunter backstroke and it was the first morning session I had had off the whole meet. And I just got on Twitter and it was blowing up and I was trying to figure out what was going on. And I realized I was getting all these responses because Justin had tweeted me after I won my hundred backstroke and said like, congrats on, on the gold or something like that. And so freaked out. I was like running around the pool deck. My coach was like, you are wasting energy. Like you need to get your act together. <laughs> this is your recovery morning. And I was like, Todd, just let me have this. All right. Give me this moment. <laughs> and so we got back and his manager reached out to us and like told us that he was coming to a concert in Denver and that they knew I was a fan and that they'd love to like arrange a meet and greet. So before the show, I just went and got to meet him. And then I bought tickets for the concert and we got to go watch. So it was, it was a blast. It was so fun. (laughs) Do you still have Bieber fever? I do. You know, I kind of fell off for a little bit, but I feel like his most recent songs I'm definitely here for. I'm definitely here for starting to pick up again. (laughs) Same. I'm the same. And the kids start listening to him again. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) I'm liking the beeps again. I know his recent stuff is really good. Yeah. When the 2012 Olympics seemed like such a magical time for you, I think we were living vicariously through your smile and the joy that you had. Were there any other stories or moments that stick with you to this day of what a great time that was? Yes, there's is one in particular that to this day is just like, it gives me goosebumps every time I tell the story because in my mind, like it encompasses what the Olympics are about and it encompasses what sport is all about. And We were sitting in the dining hall one afternoon, we were eating lunch and all of a sudden every single person in the dining hall stood up and started clapping. And just for size, like dining hall at the Olympics is like Costco on steroids. Like it's huge. And all of these athletes from all around the world, all different disciplines just stood up and started clapping. And we didn't really know what was going on. And so we kind of stood up, we're just kind of going with it. We're like clapping and looking around. And we realized that Usain Bolt had just walked in to the cafeteria and to just look around and see all of these athletes from all around the world, all bringing something amazing and special to the table, stand up and recognize the greatness in someone else and acknowledge that like, my gosh, it almost brought tears to my eyes. It was just so powerful that like in that moment, we were all one. Like we were all just one group and one community that we're sharing in this one experience and, and recognizing each other. So that was just so, so powerful for me. And I think, you know, that's what I tell people sport is about, you know, it's, it's about bringing people together and changing the world. I had never heard that. That is so cool. It was amazing. It was such a cool moment. What, what did he do? Oh, he was like surrounded with his Jamaican posse. There was like, like 10 people around him, but he was super nice about it. He just kind of like looked up and was like waving and nodding. It was just, yeah. So, so surreal to see so many athletes. So amazing in and of their own right, just stand up and, and give a standing ovation to the fastest man in the world. 
we could do a whole podcast on the dining hall at Olympics, right? Yes. <laughs> we just used to sit there and be like, oh my gosh. Seriously, I mean, wow. better than any TV you could ever watch to sit in the dining hall in the Olympic Village and just be like, oh my gosh, what is happening right now? Right? And then like the outfits and then just the different shapes and sizes of people yeah. coming through. You're like, what? It's unbelievable. So good. Coming out of that Olympics, you are America's sweetheart. You were a sponsor's dream. You could have, you could have signed these huge endorsement deals, but, and some people called you crazy for not doing this. I call you the wise one uh, because you were like, no, I'm good. I want to actually not turn pro. I want to go compete and go to college. And uh, I will hold your choice of colleges not against you. I won't hold that against you. But you decided to go to Cal Berkeley. Why? And, and turn down endorsements because you can't do both. Of course, you can't take an endorsement deal and then uh, compete collegiately. But why was going to college so important for you? So many different reasons. I think first and foremost, my education. I was just raised that my education comes first, no matter what. And eventually, swimming wouldn't be something that was my career. And, you know, I was going to have my education to fall back on forever. You know, that's something that doesn't go away. So getting a degree was never an option for me. That was always something that was hundred percent. I'm, that is something that is a goal for me. That is a dream. That's something I want to do. Um, in terms of really swimming in college, I think for me, one of the things I always loved most about swimming was the team, which a lot of people find so interesting because they do view it as such an individual sport. But the way I kind of try and get them to think differently about it was similar to, you know, me racing in a pool by myself is if someone told me to practice, you know, four hours a day in a pool by myself with no teammates, absolutely not. Like there's yeah. no way. I'm good. No exactly. thanks. When you surround me with my best friends and coaches that I respect, like, oh my gosh, heck yeah. Put me in the water. I'm there every single day because it's going to be fun. It's going to be engaging and it's going to be a bonding experience. I mean, those experiences that you have as a team, just getting through the grit. I mean, just pushing through the day after day and the training sessions and the training trips, like, my gosh, does that bond you together? And that was what I wanted. Like I told people I want to swim in college because that's where I'm going to find my future bridesmaids. And that ended up to be totally true. <laughs> that's what I wanted. And in my mind, you know, there was no amount of money that could have put a price on that for me. Yeah. When, when you talk about, and I've heard you say this before, the, the joy of winning that national title at Cal with, those athletes around you and those friends around you put that in perspective how would you rate a national title an NCAA title to an Olympic gold medal gosh they're just so different they're so different because you know an individual gold medal there are so many people that have supported you in that and that have gotten you to that point but at the end of the day that is you know your race you're by yourself you're standing on that podium alone symbolically, you have so many people there with you. I think collegiately, it's not just symbolic. Those people are actually there with you. And it's not just something that you've accomplished yourself, but it's truly something you've accomplished together as a whole 
for a greater good. So I think like in that way, they're similar and they're different, but it's just, it's really powerful to have spent an entire year working as hard as you possibly can with 30 women that were all just as passionate about the same goal. And then when you reach that goal together as a family, I mean, it's just indescribable. It's turning an individual sport into a team sport and you, and you get to experience that joy as well. You, you come off that national title at Cal, you, you turn pro, the stage is set for, for Rio 2016. And of course there are a ton of eyeballs and expectations on you after the, the London performance. Tell us about the lead up to those games and what that time was like in your life. Yeah. So lead up into 2016 was so different than lead up to 2012. I think as that 17 year old, I was really unknown, you know, people weren't expecting anything of me. So I was just able to go in with zero pressure and zero expectations and really just have fun and see what I was capable of. And I think going into 2016, I'm such a people pleaser. Um, and I like to think I'm very empathetic. So I, I feel other people's feelings very, very emotionally. And, and I just couldn't stand the thought of disappointing anyone. And mm. that thought alone just like completely overtook me. So that took away so much of the fun that took so much of the joy I took so much of the love out of the sport for me because I was almost operating from a place of fear that I was going to let these people down that I cared about so much and that it supported me along my journey. And so it was a really, really hard time. And on top of that, putting going professional, you know, adding that to the mix of now I'm trying to figure out not only how to balance swimming, but how do I balance sponsorships and traveling while trying to train and a lead up into a second Olympic games. Like it was just so, so, so heavy. And so I've talked super openly about it, but I just had major struggles with my mental health going into 2016. And, um, I'm, you know, looking back on it, just beyond grateful for the experience now as hard as it was to get through I'm now able to speak from a place of experience and from understanding that I never really would have been able to speak to before. And mental health has become a huge part of, of my philanthropic outreach now and a huge right. part of the platform and what I and what I work towards. So, you know, it's so much of what I talk about is as hard as our failures and our disappointments and our struggles can be, you know, we truly do have the power to turn them into something beautiful if, if that's what we choose to do. The thing is, as Julie said earlier, when you went pro, that meant you left Cal. That's a huge shift for anyone leaving college. So when you were training in 2016, where were you? Yeah, let's let's set the scene for this one. Okay, (laughs) so I leave college. I leave my team. I leave my best friends and I come back home to Colorado as a 21 year old and I'm living in my parents basement. All right. Like literally I was that 21 year old and I go back to train with my coach um, that I had throughout high school and my club team. So I'm now back on a team with high schoolers. So it was very isolating because I had a few other people that were training to make Olympic trials. Um, but I was really the only one there with the goals of making a second Olympic team. And not only that, but meddling again. And it was just a little tough because you go from an environment where you have, you know, 30 people that are working so hard every single day that have a clear goal, that have clear insight into what they need to do and how they want to get there into a group that 
it's kind of all over the place. You know, everyone has different goals. You know, some of them don't care as much about those goals as others. So that shows in their work ethic and, and being surrounded by that, you know, when I'm trying to train for the most important thing of my life, it just felt very isolating. And it was by no means any of their fault. And there's no blame to place there. Everyone is on their own journey and they were where they were in their life. And just all of a sudden I felt very alone in where I was in my journey and along my path. Um, and, you know, going back, I get asked all the time, would you, would you do it again? And would you make that same decision? And I'm just such a firm believer in that we learn the lessons we're supposed to learn exactly how we're meant to learn them. So as hard as that was, and as hard as that year of really kind of being alone was, I learned so much because of it. And I would not be the person sitting here today without that. Mm. That's amazing perspective. I mean, to be able to say that. It was a long time. It didn't happen today. <laughs> I, I can imagine. But as you're going through it, because it's it's not like you've you've lived this before in a sense of you know can say oh this is this is depression i'm experiencing or this anxiety and insomnia is because of this so when did you know that you needed help it's a great question so i think you make such a good point like for my whole life i've been the happiest most bubbly person ever so all of a sudden i start to get these feelings and it really is like what is this? Mm -hmm. Like, is this normal? Is like, do I need to talk to someone? Do I like, I don't, I don't know. And I think a big thing with honestly, with human beings in general, but in particular elite athletes, we tend to struggle to ask for help because we have this misconception that asking for help is a sign of weakness. And so for so long, I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Cause I was like, I'm strong enough to get through this. Like I almost wanted to prove to myself that I was strong enough to get through this. And I finally hit my point where I was not going to be able to keep going forward if I did not ask for help. And so that was when I first talked to my mom and dad about it. And then I sat down and talked to all my coaches about it. And during that process, I realized that asking for help is actually the most courageous thing mm -hmm. that you can do. And it takes so much bravery and so much strength. And so having been put in that situation and finally finding that courage within myself to tell my mom, my dad, my coaches, you know, I'm, I'm not okay. Like something's wrong. Something's been wrong for a while and I can't keep going like this. I need help. Mm. And it's so important as, as you said, miss to, to speak about it now, because I do think that athletes, we just think, oh, we're going to grind through this, right? Yeah. We're going to figure well, it out. People, not just athletes, yeah. human beings. I think about moms right now during this time, like stay at home moms that are dealing with homeschooling that are dealing like just so much that I'm like, I can't imagine like what they have been through this year and the strength that they have. And like, I know my mom is the worst person in the world at asking for help because she's the mm -hmm. same way. She's like, yeah. I can do this. Like I'm capable. And there's so many times where I'm like, no mom, like, just let me help you. Like, I really mm -hmm. want to help. You. Like, let me do this for you. And so I think it's, it's really a human thing that sometimes we just struggle and we, we do have that misconception that asking for help somehow makes us incapable or not enough. When the truth is, it just means we know ourselves well enough to know when we need that assistance and to know that it's the furthest thing in the world from a bad thing. It's, it's the most amazing thing to be able to reach out to someone you love and trust and ask for that help and, and to get through it. Yeah. 
Well, and as you as you go to the Olympics in Rio, so you're at the 2016 Olympics, you know you're not feeling well. You've identified that uh, ahead of times in terms of just it's not it, things don't feel right. But you have no idea what's going to happen, I imagine, right, in Rio. And so when that's unfolding and the script isn't going to plan, what's going through your mind in that moment? Well, it was just so much because they also, in April of 2016, sustained a, sh a shoulder injury at the Mesa Grand Prix. And right after that was when I got diagnosed with everything on the mental health standpoint. So I was just in such a state of panic because I was like, my shoulder's injured, but there's really nothing we can do about that right now because mm -hmm. trials are in a few months. Like that is one of those things I'm just going to have to grind through because I can't have a surgery right now. Like that's just not something that's on the table and then dealing with all those things mentally. And I, I will never forget. I think it was the night before competition started in Rio and I called my mom and dad and I was, I mean, hysterically sobbing and I couldn't even get words out. And I just remember my dad saying over and over again, like, honey, it's just a swim meet. Like it's just a swim meet. You're okay. And that was something I tried to carry with me throughout the whole meet. But I think at that point it was like, I knew I was probably operating at like 10%. Mm. And all I could do was like I was talking about earlier is give a hundred percent of that 10%. Whenever I talk about Rio, I talk about, it gave me the opportunity to be the person I always said I wanted to be in defeat. And that is someone who, who doesn't make excuses, who doesn't stand there and, and blame anything. And as hard as that was, you know, I would get out of the water after every race and we'd have to go through all the media mm -hmm. and I would go from station to station and I would have reporters from all over the world ask me again and again and again, what's wrong with you? And I would just kind of have to sit there and give the same response every time. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I truly don't know. I'm just not where I'm supposed to be mm -hmm. right now. And it's heartbreaking and it's disappointing, but I'm giving everything I have in the water every time I hit it. And that's, that's all I can ask of myself. So as hard as that was during that time, the way now having processed it. And like I've said, this has literally taken me since then. I mean, it's been years of processing and working through this and finding this perspective, but Rio was without a doubt, one of my biggest failures within my career. But as a person, it was one of my greatest successes yeah. because I am so proud of how I handled myself and of how I got through that and of how I still showed up for my teammates even when I was having the worst eight days of my life. And so I think that's kind of the beautiful thing about failures is they may be a failure in one sense of the word, but you do have that power to potentially turn it into one of your greatest successes. Oh, oh. I want to like reach through the screen and hug you right now. Like that, just like, oh. I, I, you've said, I don't want to just be an inspiration and success. I want to be an inspiration during disappointing times as well, because knowing how hard it is when, whether it's, you know, you're walking off a soccer field and there's a camera right there, right in the mix zone immediately after, or you're getting out of a pool and there's 500 media outlets, you know, for you saying what's wrong. I mean, in that moment, it's hard to separate. It's hard to have that perspective to go, oh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to temper this. I know I, I am angry and I am frustrated and I don't know what the hell's going on, but to actually be able to do it. Yeah, and to keep your composure enough to do it. I'm sure you just wanted to head straight to the locker room. 
That's exactly a hundred percent. That's all I could think about was just getting back to the village. So I could just go like throw myself into one of the oversized beanbag chairs and just like let it out. Oh my gosh, Missy, that strength is it. I, and I'm so happy that you in hindsight now have recognized that because that is something that you are a greater human than I could ever be. Cause I, I don't think so. I don't know if I could summon that. That is amazing. It really is. I just, did you in a way allow yourself the ability to push through those eight days, knowing that at the end of it, you were going to get more help or really devote time to healing Yeah. I think that was, that was a big thing is that is, you know, one of, I think we've talked a lot about the post-Olympic blues, but in my case, it was almost the opposite. Like I couldn't wait for them to be over. So it was like, I knew as soon as those eight days were up, I was finally going to get a break. And it's like, that's what I was thinking about is as soon as these are over, we can figure out what's going on with my shoulder. We can figure out what's going on with my mind. We can figure out, you know, what's happening, why I feel like this. And because at that point, like leading up to Rio, like physically and metaphorically, we couldn't do a surgery on my shoulder or on my mind. We literally had to stick band-aids on and just get me through it. Like it was like, just make it through these eight days. And so I think knowing that after that, I was actually going to have the time and the space to fix what really needed fixing. I definitely think that was something that helped get me through it. You end up winning a gold medal in the relay, but you don't actually qualify for the event that you owned, right? Which was the 200 meter backstroke. And just to add another layer, you actually go into the stands having not qualified for this event that you had dominated for so long and go and cheer your teammates on at that Olympics. That was probably my biggest takeaway from the whole meet. And like, I think this is what I would consider my greatest success because I didn't make a single final in 2016. I got my gold medal on the four by 200 freestyle relay because I competed on the prelim relay and we qualified the team for their spot at night. Um, But I was not selected appropriately so to swim on that relay in the evening because they needed the four fastest swimmers. But the prelim swimmers that help that relay achieve their spot for finals still get medals. So that was how I got my gold medal not qualifying for a final in any individual event was beyond heart-wrenching, but for the 200 backstroke in particular, I mean, to come into my second Olympic games, not only as the reigning Olympic champion, but as the current world record holder and not even qualifying to compete, to regain that was, I mean, I always described it like 200 back was like my baby. Like it felt like someone who literally like ripped this away from me. And all I wanted to do was just get as far away from it as I possibly could. But I kind of had that moment with myself where I was like, listen, I have a teammate in this race. Like my Dorado is swimming the 200 back show tonight. And I wouldn't be able to look at myself in a mirror if I didn't stand up in my stands with my team and cheer with her for with all of my might. Like there's no way. So I went up there and my best friend and roommate at the time was there and I held her hand the whole mm-hmm. race. I'm pretty sure I was crying for half of it. And I got to watch my teammate 
win a gold medal and keep the 200 back within the United States. And to feel that sense of joy for someone who deserved it so much and to see her, to see Maya Dorado win that race, to see her exuberance and to just know how much she had earned that. Mm. Like I would have never forgiven myself if I'd missed that. Mm. I think you earned a lot of good karma in your life for that moment. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I also always earn pennies head side up when I see them, if their tails up for good luck. So I think that helps a lot as well. I, I was just thinking, could we copy paste Missy Franklin and just like keep going copy paste, copy paste. Like, let's just clone you. I would like the how to guide to life, Missy. Can you work on that too? I probably do not have it even close to all figured out. Uh, I'm going to work on cloning you. That's going to be my next job. Perfect. I can't wait. I think those, there's a real willingness though, to keep working on your life, obviously. And the fact that you are so open about talking about your struggles, I would imagine part of that is so that you let people know that you can relate to them. When you're that authentic, you can get so much more connection with people. I could not agree more. And thank you first off for even saying that, but I I think that's huge. And I'm such, such, such a firm believer that we go through the things that we go through in life. So then we can help other people go through that same thing. Mm -hmm. And as hard as 2016 was for me in that whole year and my recovery process, I would not be able to speak to it the way that I do now, had I not gone through that. A big piece of what I talk about with mental health is it's you know, it's, it's a lifelong process. You know, it's not like you struggle, you get better and then you never have to worry about it again. That's like saying with your physical health, like if you go on a run every day for a week and then don't do anything for six months, like that doesn't do anything, right? Like both our physical and our mental health, they need consistency. You know, we need to be continually working on them and growing and learning. And I think that's just, that's so important for people's understanding, especially of mental health right now and trying to remove that stigma around it of that we're going to continue to deal with things for our entire lives because it's life and it throws challenges at us. It throws change at us. It throws suffering at us. And we're going to have to go through periods like that. And we may not have experienced things like that before. So just to be patient with yourself and to learn as much as you can from those experiences and figure out how do you get through those? What do you need? Who do you ask for help? Who do you talk to? And most importantly, how do you feel like you're not alone when you're going through something like that? What advice would you give to people, Missy, in terms of how you were able to come to terms with that? I think giving it time and giving yourself grace. I think that was huge for me that for the longest time I was trying to figure out why. And that took so much energy that I just couldn't figure out why is this happening to me? I've worked so hard. I have put so much effort into this. This has been my life goal, my life dream. Why is this happening to me? And after about six months after Rio of just kind of fighting and fighting that, I finally just kind of released it and said, I will eventually learn why. Like right now, I may not know, but I trust that eventually I will learn why. But for right now, I'm going to focus on instead of why did this happen? 
where do I go from here and how do I start to heal and how do I start to get better? And again, it took me several months to get there. So having that grace and that patience to just accept yourself and where you are, um, but also make sure that you, you are putting in the work because it is work to get better. It is work to heal again, same thing. If you injure yourself physically, physical therapy, no one likes it, but you gotta do it. Like, (laughs) and it's the same thing. Sometimes, you know, maybe it's working with the therapist. Sometimes that can be really hard, but that's how you get better. Some people love it. I loved my therapist. I, she's fantastic. I loved going to therapy. So like, it's just, it's so different for everyone, but just making sure that you're putting in that work to get better, but knowing that, you know, healing is not a linear process. You know, it's not like one day you wake up and decide, okay, I'm going to start to get better today. I'm going to heal. And then it's just this kind of straight line up. I mean, it's very up and down. And so having grace for yourself on the days where you do take a step or two back and knowing that what's important is the next day you wake up and try to take another step forward. Now I want to give you a hug, Missy. (laughs) I feel them. I really do. I knew you were going to want to react to that, Lynn. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to shut up for once. First time in laughter permitted history, Julie <laughs> did not talk. <laughs> what I know you you've been so goal oriented um, your entire athletic career, and I imagine that translates a, a, a thousandfold to to life. So fill us in on what you're doing now in in your life. It looks so great on Instagram and Twitter, but. <laughs> So I think now I've shifted my goals really professionally and especially philanthropically, which has just been so much fun. Um, so I kind of made, um, made the goal after I retired that within two years, I wanted to sit on a national board and a global board of two philanthropic organizations. Uh, <laughs> I love that. That's a goal. You're like, yeah. I'm going to do this. <laughs> like I, I, this is important to me. And really keep like working with the companies that I form such great relationships with. So a lot of what happened was I moved into more of an ambassadorship position within the companies that represented me while I was still swimming. So I started doing a ton of motivational speaking with them and a lot of appearances, which is just so much fun. And, and then going back to the philanthropic front, I've been um, an Academy member for Laureus. I started off as an ambassador and became a member back in 2018. And Laureus isn't really well known here, which is crazy to me, but um, it's a really big um, all over the world, especially in Europe, but it was a foundation started by Nelson Mandela and it's all on the basis of using sport for good. So they literally fund projects all around the world that are using sport for good in their communities. And so I got on my first board that I was so excited about, and I'm a board member for UWA and they are a program based in India and they use soccer to keep young girls out of childhood marriage and they've grown a school and it's like the most incredible program. So being able to work with them, I've been doing classes with the girls um, during this kind of time, um, which has been amazing to get to know them better and, and then working to um, become an even more um, integrative part of Laureus as well. But so really focusing my efforts there. And then I've been doing a ton of work with children's hospital since I've been back in Denver, just because my heart just is with them so much and they're creating an amazing, 
amazing new pediatric mental health institute because um, Colorado actually has the highest risk, um, highest rate of teen suicide in the country. So working a lot with them to get their facility ready and prepared and raising the money we need to, to have that available. So lots of, lots of fun stuff like that. <laughs> you are an angel. I see that halo. Damn. It's... Hardly, hardly. I have been given so much. And this is just my way of, of saying thank you for that. And you're married with a cute dog. Let's not forget that. I'm married to literally a man that I'm utterly obsessed with. And our dog <laughs> is the best thing in the whole world. So really zero complaints over here. <laughs> your husband is cute. I hope that's not weird, but your dog is even cuter. They're both so cute. I just sometimes I'm sitting on the couch and I'm looking at both of them. And I'm like, I have no idea what I did to deserve this. <laughs> All that karma, I'm telling you. (laughs) All the turning the pennies upside down. (laughs) Okay, Missy, do you know what time it is? Tell me. Game time, baby. Let's Let's go. (laughs) Missy, it is time for you to go head to head with Julie in a trivia game. Do you have a noisemaker? Because that is the most crucial part of the game. I I do not. I have like a drum roll on my desk. That, That works. Um, I don't want to brag about my noisemaker, but I got a new one. (laughs) And Swaggy on cue, my dog is coming around the corner. Running. (laughs) Santa noisemaker, noisemaker, because she ate my donut. Noisemaker. Here she comes. Can you hear her scratching? She's like, give me the Santa. Give me the Santa. For this trivia game, you will get multiple choice. Got it. Theme of this game is Christmas movies. Oh, okay. Okay. I feel better already. I was worried it was going to be like Olympic trivia. And I was like, I'm going to look so bad. <laughs> Gosh, I'm going to stink at these. And you know this, Lynn. Let's go. <laughs> five questions, best of five wins. Question one. In the 1947 classic, A Miracle on 34th Street, what department store did Chris Kringle work at? Was it A, Saks Fifth Avenue? B, Macy's, or C, Higby's? I've never seen it. <laughs> Julie, <laughs> have you? Go, Jules. Oh, God. C, Higby's. Incorrect. Missy, you have a chance. Either A, Saks Fifth Avenue, or B, Macy's. Saks. Incorrect. We are off to a roaring start. So happy you're just as bad as me. We're doing great. All right, keep it up. Question two. In the movie Elf, what actor plays Buddy the Elf? Will Ferrell. Correct. (laughs) I knew that one too. Wait, Swaggy is going to go nuts. Hold on. Oh my God, this dog. Julie's letting Swaggy into her office. Okay. Question three. What are the names of the neighbors in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation? Is it A, Todd and Margot, B, Ted and Midge, or C, Tim and Maggie? Julie. I have no idea, but I cannot lose this early. Uh, B, Ted and Midge. <laughs> Incorrect. Oh, God. I also have not. Oh, my gosh. Put this one on your list ahead of Miracle on 34th Street. So Todd and Margot or Tim and Maggie? Todd and Margot. Correct. Oh no, she's up two to zero. Oh my gosh, if you win this next one, you win. <laughs> Have either of you seen Home Alone? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Okay. Have seen that, have seen it. Question four, in Home Alone, 
Kevin McAllister was left behind to fend off burglars when his family visited which city? Paris. Correct. (gasps) Missy Franklin takes the game. Here's how I know that so quickly is A, we watched it last night, but B, Hayes and I literally had a conversation where we were like, what did Kevin McAllister's dad do? that they were able to take a family of like eight to Paris for Christmas. Like what was his job? You watched it last night. And they were in first class. Like what? You two conspired. Missy Franklin Johnson takes the game. Thank you, thank you. Nicely done, beautiful, really, really well played. Most pressing questions. Are you ready, Missy? Ready. Yep. I'm sorry for the squeakiness in the background. Swaggy won and she got the toy. I lost, so I had to give Swaggy the toy. Uh, I saw you tweet to Simone Biles recently when she was like, I just put my pizza in the oven and I am not looking back. And you were like, girlfriend, you need an air fryer. And I literally could not have liked it. Um, If I had liked it a million times, that wouldn't have been enough because I have an air fryer. They are the best kitchen appliance. Right? Game yeah. changers and the pizza in them. Oh, yeah. they're the best for reheating leftover ah. vegetables. Like that's my thing. It's like I, Hayes literally calls me a giant vegetable because I'm obsessed with vegetables and I eat them all the time. But if you're someone that doesn't like vegetables, oh my gosh, get an air fryer. Like you get the crispy and the, oh, sweet potato fries. Oh, don't. I could just for days. Was there a question in there? No, that was it. There was no question. I will only say that my husband for, I'm not kidding, a good eight months was like, honey, I really want to buy an air fryer because he is the one who is the chef in the family, bless his soul. And I was like, I mean, we have have every appliance that you could use to cook. I was like, no, we do not need an air fryer. And now I'm obsessed with it. Life-changing. Yeah, I was like, I'm so wrong. He goes, write that down (laughs) in the contract. You found the error in your ways. We brought you onto the good I side. Know, I know. <laughs> Next most pressing, what is a confidence jar? And do you still have one? So such a good question. I don't actually still have one. I should. So a confidence jar was something that we started when I was swimming at Cal. And it was something we would do, uh, we would do right before our championship season. So we would have a little jar and we would decorate it. And throughout the season, whenever we would have really good practices or really good weight sessions or just did anything that we were really proud of, we would write it down and you would stick it in your confidence jar. And then you could give other people confidence as well. So if you saw that your teammate had a really good practice, you'd write that down and give it to them to put in their jar. And then before NC2As, we would bring our jars with us and we would dump them out the night before the meet started. We would literally have an entire season full of confidence of all the amazing practices that you had, all the things your teammates had written about you. And it was just like the best way to get into the perfect headspace right before heading into the biggest competition of the season. That is cool. That is awesome. I'm going to start a confidence jar. (laughs) Highly recommend it. Lastly, we are going to do high, low cheer, and we would like the high of your career, Missy, the low of your career, and the cheer is for someone who has helped you along the way. Oh my gosh, that's great. So, oh my gosh. 
Okay. Low of my career. I know this one was a very private moment. Um, it was much smaller probably than a lot of people are expecting, but I was, I want to say I was either 16 or 17. We were leading up to training for London. So I was still in high school. I was still on my club team. And one day at practice, I was just so tired and so exhausted. And instead of like communicating with my coach and working through it, I just got really, really emotional. And I ran into the girls locker room and I just started like sobbing. And, um, I came out of the bathroom and there were a bunch of the little starfish. So a bunch of like five, six, seven year old little girls that were getting ready for practice that were like, are you okay? Like what's wrong? And I felt so bad that in that moment I had let them see me like that and kind of, instead of handling it in a way that would have been something that they could have looked up to. I just kind of took that easy way out and, and chose to sort of like escape the situation and run away from it. And in that disappointment and then being so upset, I was just sobbing. And, and so for them to see that was really heartbreaking for me because that was not the kind of role model that I wanted to be. So that was one of my lowest, my high would probably be, when I made my first Olympic team, um, when I made London in the, in the Hunter backstroke. Um, and I got a text from a longtime coach right after his name is Jack Roach. He's like the Yoda of the swimming world. He's amazing. And he texted and said, you're now an Olympian for the rest of your life. And I think that just really hit me that, you know, no matter what else happened, no matter where my life took me, like I had accomplished something I dreamed of doing and it was going to be with me forever. And then we went back to the hotel room that night and my mom had literally decorated my hotel room with like American flags and streamers and balloons. It was so cute. It was so cute. Um, And on that note for cheer, definitely uh, my mom. I mean, she has just been my absolute backbone and, and she's had to be more than my mom. I mean, for those, those years, you know, my senior year before college, during college, before I could accept an agent. I mean, she had to take on that role. She was the one that was talking to the media and talking, you know, to people trying to schedule photo shoots. And, and that was not easy for her. I mean, she didn't know anything about that. And she took on that position and that job for me because of what I wanted to do and what my goals were, what my goals were. And just the love that she showed me throughout my entire career. Like I knew no matter how a race went, whether I got first and won a gold medal or whether it was the worst race of my entire life, I would go to her and she would look at me and she would say, did you do your best? And I would say, yes. And she'd say, I'm so proud of you. And I love you. And she'd give me a huge hug and just having that and knowing that, um, that got me through so much. Mm. Moms. 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 And they're close now to you too, right? Oh yeah. We're two hours away. So it's been a little tough just because they're, they're pretty high risk. Um, so we haven't been able to see them nearly as much as we had expected to moving back to Colorado, but we've got a good system. Now we quarantine for a full two weeks and we get tested before we go up and see them. So, and we're going to go up for Christmas. So that'll be really nice. Thank you for being so courageous to tell your story. Cause I know it's not easy. Right. And, and how many people it will help. It has to be hard to talk about it over and over again, yet you do so 
with such grace and, and kindness and compassion. So I can't, I, I, I just am thrilled for you in this next phase of your life. So I can't wait to watch you. Thank you so much. You guys it means the world. <laughs> I'm going to get back to you on whether or not I've been able to clone you. I hope to know by the end of 2020. Get Let me know news you, going. you like DNA, hair strands, saliva. <laughs> I'll send it all. <laughs> Missy, I'll be waiting for your DNA, hair samples, and saliva. Is that weird? Also weird? Also weird. You <laughs> called her husband hot during the interview, essentially. <laughs> a lot of weirdness going on. We're just going to roll with it. Uh, she's just so much fun to talk to. Such a breath of fresh air and a joy. Loved spending time with Missy. You know, and what we didn't even talk about, which I'm going to give her a plug for because it's really cool what she's doing. She is going to be doing a 10 session virtual course for young swimmers. It's called the Relentless Spirit Experience. She's going to be starting this in January, literally live courses where she's engaged. She's talking to everyone on the call from from nutrition and technique to overcoming failure. So you can go to missy2021.learnworlds.com to learn more. I'm putting that little plug in for her because she didn't. And Missy, we would like to talk to you every week going forward. Also weird. No? A little weird? Okay. I'm in. <laughs> She's fantastic. Questions permitted, Lynn. Yes. This week it comes from at UT Skier 11. Hey, double number one. Yes, good number. Here goes. I fly a lot for work pre-COVID and have a list of people I would love to find sitting next to me. Yes, Loudy Foudy is one of them. So Aww. who would Julie love to find herself randomly seated by on a flight? Mm. I don't know. Chris Hemsworth? Weird. <laughs> Let's just stay with it. <laughs> stay with the theme. Have you ever sat down and been randomly seated next to someone? That like Chris Hemsworth? was cool. Hello, Thor. Well, hello. Uh, you know, I can't say I have. Man, and all the flying you do. I know. Have done. I mean, I obviously have met really interesting people, but weirdly, because I am an extrovert, I'm not a big talker on planes. I like put my headphones on. I'm like, I'm good. I'll tell you who I would like to be seat seated next to, though. Like, I would love to have beers or a glass of wine or just hang out with Michelle Obama. I knew yes. you were going to say that. You did. I did. She's so cool. I've met Moshe Michelle Obama. She won't remember that, but I've met her and I've spent some time with her. Uh, a little bit of time. Uh, and she's just so neat. But anyways, what about you, Lynn? Who would you want to hang out with? My favorite random seat mate is an empty seat next to me. <laughs> right? I know. That's terrible. Yes. I'll go with Michelle Obama as well. That would be yeah. That would be that'd be incredible. Or she could just come on the pod. I don't know. Great idea. One or the other. Okay, a reminder to our listeners before we let you go, please rate and leave comments regarding our podcast. Tell a friend or 5,000 about the podcast, please, because we are still trying to continue to grow this very awesome dope village. Thank you for being a part of it. If you could help us grow it, that'd be greatly appreciated. 
We also hope you'll support our sponsors as well, Ally Bank and Dick's Sporting Goods. Thanks as always to Kate Diaz for our awesome theme music. And as always, kids, remember, sing it with us. Laughter permitted. I am wearing actual pants today. So this is where we're at. Hey there, Dope Village. I wanted to remind you about the best NFL podcast around. The Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny. Every week, the brilliant Mina Kimes tackles the biggest NFL topics with precise analysis and, of course, signature wit. You can find the Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny, that's her dog, by the way, wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out.